Welcome. Welcome, humans. Welcome to the rise of cyborgs and post-human beings. This talk, or this panel, or this event, is about what technology does to us as humans. It's about skin and wires, about computer brains and silicon chips. It's about the futures of ourselves as individuals and society and where we're heading and where we think we might head, what we can predict and what we can't predict about where it takes us. And during the panel, you notice that we probably won't even have any technical conversation as such. We're not going to be talking about the, the technical detail of any implant. It's about the social and psychological impacts, what it does to you and to me. And you might think that I have chosen this topic, the rise of cyborgs and post-human beings. I love saying that. Uh, it's, it's a bit fanciful. You know, why, why would I choose a topic like that? Well, two reasons. One is that it should be fun. Science and what we do should be about fun. In fact, I believe that fun is a fundamental force of the universe, and I'm angling for a Nobel Prize for the discovery, a big collider out there somewhere, spending billions of dollars, and they're going to verify the existence of the fun boson. Actually, I want it to be called the rod boson, but uh, I might not get my wish there. So the, the, the rod boson, or the fun boson, is a, a fundamental force in the universe that carries fun. And a warning to you, though, in physics there's a thing called symmetry, right? So there's a particle and there's an antiparticle. And the fun boson is instantly annihilated when it encounters the bean counter boson. <laughs> but strangely enough, the bean counter itself is unaffected. It just goes right on. Now, the other reason that we have this panel called The Rise of Cyborgs and Post-Human Beings is because they are here today. Cyborgs are right with us as we speak. In fact, I am a sort of cyborg. Have a look at this. This is a hearing aid. It's a 32-bit Motorola digital signal processor with fuzzy logic, which is pretty cool, because that's where I come from, a radio station called, a radio program called Fuzzy Logic on 2XX. We, we all are cyborgs in a sort of a way, depending on your definition of the term. I think we're all wearing clothing, so that's a way in which you've all augmented your bodies with technology in some way. You've adapted to the environment. We've made ourselves more fit for the environment by wearing clothes, walking sticks. Maybe we have a pacemaker out here. And in fact, we have a person on the panel here who's even more cyborg than I am and more cyborg than most of you. I'd like to introduce now our guests. Now, I cannot imagine a better group of people to carry this conversation with us than the people we have here today. And starting from the left, we have Yov Naren, who is, in fact, a cochlear implant recipient. And he would not be here, I think, without that implant. Then we have Dr. Bruce McKay. And Bruce is really excited because he's just got a really rapturous write-up in the Sydney Morning Herald for his novel called Skin Job, and it's a techno thriller which I highly recommend. It's a thundering good read. 
We'd love to give you uh, copies for a signing today, but he sold them all. So <laughs> the, long, long, the long face means that he, he can't give you one and sign them, but uh, I do recommend that. And we're going to see that come out, I predict, under the name of a major publisher before too long. And then we have uh, Professor Bob Williamson. And Bob is the, the uh, professor of the, sorry, the group leader of the machine learning group at, at NICTA. He's a professor of research school of computer science at the Australian National University. And he's currently working on a report to the chief scientists on the impact of technology on society. And we might get him to describe that a little bit more in detail. And Bob is a fellow of the Academy of Science. So we're enormously privileged to have our three guests here today. Now, Rob Shepard, who is the director of the Bionics Institute, couldn't make it, unfortunately. He's had a situation, so he sends his apologies. So you could say now that with our guests that Jove lives it, Bruce imagines it, and Bob builds it. So let's start with you, Jove. Uh, you're a cochlear implant recipient, and I'm trying to imagine what your life was like before the cochlear implant. Now just, just think about what a cochlear implant means for a bit. It sounds really simple, okay, just put a cochlear implant, but you're going to go under general anaesthetic, a surgeon is going to get a scalpel, and they're going to slice through your scalp, and they're going to drill holes in your skull, and they're going to feed wires into the cochlea. That sounds like a pretty serious commitment to me, Jove. What was life like before the cochlear implant? Well, I, I wasn't born deaf, obviously. And um, at some stage, I started losing my hearing uh, after I had the flu, a very uh, bad part of the flu. And over quite a rapid time, a period of time, I, I lost my hearing. So um, it, it was gradual, it wasn't overnight. Um, at the same time, my first grandson was born, and then he started talking, and of course I missed out everything. I just could not hear what he was talking about. Um, my, I had to ask my son always to translate what he was saying, and to me that probably was the hardest thing to, uh, to bear, not being able to hear him. With people around me, um, I just had to explain to people, look, you know, this is a situation, you have to do the following to make it easier for me to hear. Um, I went with a group of people overseas, and uh, guides were talking, and of course I couldn't hear anything. So every morning I gave someone a pad of paper with a pen and said, use the scribe for today. So whatever was said that was important, someone had to scribble down for me. So it wasn't that easy, but it wasn't dramatic. Um, I think Rod exaggerated about the operation. It wasn't all that bad. <laughs> it, uh, you know, you don't drill holes through your skull and skull, you know. It, it wasn't all that bad. But uh, nowadays, of course, I function. I can do everything that everybody else does as far as hearing concerned, communication, except for background noise. This is still a problem, and I still suffer a lot with sitting down, people for dinner, three, four people in a restaurant, I can't hear unless you talk directly at me. So, all good. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty big commitment and it says a lot about what hearing loss means to a person in, in, in their environment. 
Now, Bob, you are an expert in machine intelligence, in artificial intelligence. What got you into that field? Was it just the sheer curiosity and the intellectual puzzle of trying to solve a problem of how I'm going to do something with a machine? Or was it something else on top of that? What brought you into this field? Um, ham radio. Um, when I was in high school, I had a ham radio station, and that's all about extracting signals from noise. And um, you can generalise the notion of that, and that's what I've studied my whole life, about how you find patterns in, um, in the environment. Now, the definition of cyborg includes, uh, in my loose definition, somebody with a walking stick is a, perhaps a kind of a cyborg, but increasingly it includes people who have got some sort of, or devices with some kind of intelligence built into them. Do you see that as being a really major trend in, in prosthetics and similar devices? Well, certainly the microelectronics revolution has meant that you can have, like you have, a hearing aid with a computer in it. So computers are um, very cheap now. Um, there's more transistors in the world than there are grains of rice. Right? I mean, transistors are incredibly cheap. So we can build what we call intelligent um, technology very cheaply. Now, it's not intelligent at the level of someone that you can go and talk to. It might be intelligent like a thermostat or the cruise control in your car, right? Fifty years ago, that would be considered intelligent. But that is extremely useful. You have it in, say, a heart pacemaker. The early ones did not have a computer. Now they have a computer. It, it provides a functionality that you would not get otherwise. Now, Bruce McCabe, in your novel Skin Job, you explore a world which is really... A little bit like our own world, but a little bit different in some ways. And you seem to be thinking about what technology does to us and where it goes. What, what drove you to write Skin Job? Yeah, so my passion has been for many years trying to understand how technology and people co-evolve. Uh, because we've studied for many years, or tried to study how people adopt technology so we can do it better, you know, develop a better phone and people can adopt it more readily or a better IT system in your company and so forth, and we just seem to do it really badly. And, and to me, it's very much a biological thing. It's social, it's political. And not only do we have to understand people's incentives and motives for adopting, but we have to understand how technology changes people in the process. So that's sort of um, always been my inspiration, and this particular story just takes it down a, uh, a road where we're exploring how technology is changing us uh, sexually, how technology is adapting religion in the background, and how it's adapting the way we respond to and do security, policing. You know, this thing called national security that we hear about at the moment. We, we're adapting our norms at the moment and behaviours. And what Snowden came out with the other day, for example, would have been utterly shocking, you know, 20 years ago. Now, most of us are kind of rolling with it. We're adapting our norms. And that, that's what it is. So for the, for the benefit of people who haven't read Skin Job, because it's quite hard to get at the moment, what, what's the premise behind the novel? Well, I correct you on one thing. It's easy to get online. So <laughs> it's um, published on Amazon. But one of the great things about Australian booksellers is they've been supporting me as an indie publisher. Uh, so through the kindness of a couple of book chains, we're really getting it rolling here. Um, but sorry, what was the, um, the, the other part? Well, well, what's the main plot point? What's, what's, um, the, what's the driving force behind the novel? The what if that started this was some technology I saw in about 2005 demonstrated. So my work is very much around innovation and adoption of new technologies and helping companies understand what's coming. 
and what it might mean, more importantly. And as a demonstration uh, of some software uh, being deployed in call centres, uh, which was lie detection software, uh, and it was being deployed by insurance companies, uh, where claimants would ring in to make their insurance claim, and the operator would every now and again hear a little beep in their, uh, in their own earphones. Of course, the customer couldn't hear it. When the voice stress detection analysis sort of hit certain levels. Not perfect. They didn't call it live detection software. They called it voice stress detection analysis. Um, but the idea was it would prompt the operator to ask more questions. You know, did you really leave your car locked? Uh, are you sure you didn't leave your keys in the ignition you know, when it was stolen? That sort of thing. I found that quite disturbing. And when I presented that to people as part of a presenting on a portfolio of technologies that are, that are out there that you probably don't know about that are quite interesting, people were really disturbed. Um, that led me down a path of watching lie detection technologies, which are still very imperfect, but they're incrementally getting better and they're now using biometrics like iris dilation and face blushes and other things in airports and so forth to tell whether we might be lying. Um, you know, I watched the deployment of uh, some devices in Afghanistan which were handheld portable lie detectors. Again, very imperfect, 85% accuracy. But the what if was what happens when our police carry them in the street? You know, when we take our national security dialogue that we're in right now, just a little bit further out, 10 years hence, absolutely, absolutely possible, given the pressures on our law enforcement people to react quickly to things like the Boston bombing and so forth, that they would be carrying lie detectors and holding them under your nose while they're doing those interviews. And that was the what if that inspired the story. Yeah. So, Joe, when you had your cochlear implant, and I'm picturing you, you know, the world, a movie scene, like the world comes dizzily into view and you open your eyes, and then sometime later they switch the thing on. What was the first thing that happened? What was your experience when they turned the cochlear implant on for the first time? Well, um, I had to basically be connected to a computer, to a laptop computer, and they set various parameters, and then the, the clinician said, look, I'm going to switch the uh, microphone on now. And uh, he switched it on, said, can you hear me? And I said, yes, I can. And uh, it, was, it was actually an amazing experience. I must admit, I expected to be able to do that. Um, and uh, it takes a while, by the way, to be able to hear perfectly with the hearing, with the cochlear implant because after all, it is a manufactured sound. This hearing aid amplifies sound. The cochlear implant manufactures sound, so it's a completely different sound. So your brain has to adjust to this particular sound. And um, it, it's not perfect from the word go. Um, I suppose most of you probably seen Doctor Who and heard the dialect speak, and that's the sound that you first get the mechanical sound, but it's uh, over time, your brain adjusts and you, you hear, you know, I mean, look, I'll give you an example. I used to watch um, SBS News, and Mary Kostakidis at the time was reading the news, and before I lost my hearing completely, I recognized her voice, but after I had the implant, I listened to her one day and she sounded completely different. I saw her visually, but the sound was different. Uh, initially, I couldn't tell if someone stood behind me and talked. I couldn't tell whether it was a male or a female. After a while, you adjust. You can't do that. So, 
it, it, takes, it takes time, but it's, it's an amazing thing when you first um, hear. Unfortunately, I haven't got a video for it here um, of kids who are first switched on. These are kids who are born deaf. And when they first switched on, you can see their reactions. Yeah, and, and uh, some of us went to Graham Clark's lecture, and he was one of the developers of the cochlear implant, and he showed footage of the people's faces when they first turned the cochlear implant on, and it's quite remarkable, it's quite moving to see. Suddenly they can hear. It, it must be an amazing thing, because to lose your hearing is, is, a, is a miserable thing, but then to suddenly have it brought back to you. I've just got to add to that. One of the remarkable things about Joe I discovered at dinner last night is that whilst uh, his, his implant simplifies sound or gives him a different version of it, if you like, and there's less fidelity technically than what we might get without ears, he actually is an amazing linguist. He picks up accents better than anybody else. He listens. So, so some, and this speaks to me that that brain adaptivity you have an ability beyond anyone I've, I can remember meeting to pick out a mixture of accents in someone's background when they speak to you. But having said that, I always had that. It's, it, no. it's not since I've got the implant, because at high school I was, when there was plays, for instance, and they had to have a foreigner and put an accent on, they always asked me to do it, because I yeah. could do it perfectly. So I always had that. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing is, which surprises a lot of clinicians and doctors and audiologists is the fact that I can still detect someone speaks to me, I can tell where they come from, I can tell their accent. I've got very fine-tuned ears to that, so I always had that. Okay, now we're going to be passing the microphone around so that you can ask your own questions of the panel. And when you do, I, please make them fairly short and very succinct so that uh, we, we don't want, we know we have limited time today. And when you do ask your questions, here's a thought for you. Do you have a preferred, or um, imagined or real implant of some sort that you want to tell us about? And I'll tell you what mine is, because I should eat my own dog food. And that is, I would like a device that returns my hearing back to what it used to be. That's what I would like. Now, an imaginary device, I reckon a pair of a bionic eyes would be really funky. You know, ones that you can zoom in and zoom out. Like, you remember? Who, who remembers the $6 million man TV series? <laughs> yeah, you know exactly what I mean. Yeah. And you could see maybe enhanced colours or, or into the spectrum that you, that you and I can't see. Like a bee can see colours in the flower that we can't see. Imagine how rich your world would be if you could do that. So we're going to be passing the microphone around in a few minutes, but I'd like you to think about what question you have. And uh, while you're thinking about that, I have a question for Bob, because uh, Professor Williamson, who's working on this report for the chief scientist, and it's about trying to look into the future and see where technology is taking we humans and our society. Can you tell us a bit about that, Bob? Uh, certainly. So the idea is to provide advice to government on new technologies and what their impact might be. So Bruce had his speculation in his, uh, in his book but obviously this is valuable for a government to try and understand. There are plenty of technologies that are in the lab now that will, some of them will end up in widespread deployment. New technologies that you see come onto the market now typically have a very long genesis and people don't understand what that genesis, how long that genesis is. So the internet, for example, um, was the first developed um, two years after I was born. 
1964. It takes a long time to, for these things to reach deployment. We're asked to give a view on what those new technologies might be, how they might affect society, and uh, realise when you say affect society, it will affect different people differently. Uh, this is one of the, the things. Different technologies affect people in very, very different ways. So a given piece of technology might be very beneficial for some, and it might be quite harmful for others. Very, very difficult to understand, and what might you do about that? How might you regulate them? What are the factors that affect the adoption of technology? So the perception of risk, for example. So think of genetically modified organisms or nuclear power. There are plenty of compelling arguments as to the benefits of these, but many people um, are, have concerns because there are also downsides. And the final one I would mention would be what would be the factors affecting the adoption of new technologies in business. And ultimately, I guess the point is that, well, what policy levers might a government be able to adjust for the benefit of the country overall in this respect. So armed with that kind of knowledge, the sort of insights that your report brings, how might we respond to it? Are there things that we can do now that prepare us better for this as individuals and as in government and organisations and business and so on? Well, we haven't written in the report yet, but look, one thing that is, is quite clear, and Bruce actually alluded to this before, um, if you think of what is a good model for how technology changes and interacts in society, the best model out there seems to be an evolutionary one. So in exact analogy with biological evolution. And you know, the, the, the essence of that is that there is some kind of variation. It can be random. There can be recombination of ideas. And there is a selection step. And the selection step is a function of the environment as a whole. Now, this all sounds rather abstract, but the point I'm making is that it's one of the reasons it's so hard to predict whether particular technologies take off is because they, their prevalence will be a function of society as a whole. I'll give you a concrete example. Um, about 10 or 15 years ago, there was, 15 years ago, there were two developments in mobile telephony, um, quite independent. The uh, engineers who developed one of them, it was called WEP, um, or WAP, web, uh, yeah, web Access Protocol or something. So this was the internet on a mobile phone 15 years ago, and it was impossible to use. Right? I was a professor of telecommunications at the time. I could not get it to work. <laughs> right? It was pretty tricky to use. Um, the engineers thought, this is, this is going to be big. Everyone's going to want WAP. There was this other technology introduced around then with the GSM phone, which is um, the short message service. Now, this was developed so that the carrier could send technical updates to your phone. Right? That's, that is why it was introduced. And they thought that would be the only reason it would ever be used. What actually happened? Very few people remember what WAP is. Right? Everyone is using SMS, you know, um, 50 or 100 times a day. And no one could predict that. So I think that's a, an example to keep in mind. Yeah. Now, does anybody from the audience would like, would you, any of you like to ask a question? Yes, we have one here. Um, Jared, if you can take the microphone over. Um, so, cyborg technology is often used to correct disabilities and things. What do you think about technology used to correct problems in someone's brain? Like, you know, implants and things. Because I have heard that um, electroshock treatment can be used to treat depression very successfully. And I'm not sure if it's already been done or if it's just been talked about. The possibility of putting a device in someone's brain that gives them regular electroshocks. 
to control their depression. So what do you guys think about that? And of course, there would be dangers involved. I, I, I can answer that one. Um, this, this has indeed been done, but it's not electroshock in the sense um, of a, you know, electricity can really hurt you or it can stimulate you in a small amount. Your nervous system runs on electricity. I know of two implants that have been built and are in people that are already in their brain. One is called deep, it's a deep brain stimulation device for people with Parkinson's disease. And um, I've seen a video akin to the one you alluded to, the Graham Clark thing, where a lady who had had Parkinson's for 10 years, and as a consequence of that, she could not open her left hand. And um, they, they put this thing in her brain, and um, they said, OK, we're going to switch it on now. And she does this, and you see this beautific um, smile on her face. Another one that's actually been developed in NICTA is called the, um, uh, it's a spinal implant. So technically your spinal cord's part of your brain. And uh, this is a device for people with chronic pain. And apparently there's uh, plenty of people with chronic pain, particularly in the lower part of their body. And there's nothing you can do about this. What this device does, it sits on the spinal cord, um, outside of the spinal cord. It doesn't go inside the, it's effectively the blood-brain barrier. It's got eight electrodes. It's connected to a computer with a very complicated algorithm, analogous to what the cochlear implant does. And it provides a stimulation that blocks pain. Because pain is simply an electrical signal in the nervous system. So this device, you put it into someone with chronic pain, you flick the switch, you turn pain off. So what we're seeing is a technology that really transforms people's lives. Joe, if you weren't wearing a cochlear implant, where would you be today? Probably where I'm at now. I don't think it would have hindered me in any way. It just makes my life a lot easier. Would, would you be able to do a panel such as this? Um, probably there are means and ways. I mean, people can write down for me. They can type for me. Um, I, I really believe that uh, you know, I could function quite well without it. But it makes life a lot easier. And you can hear the voice of your grandchild? Well, that's true. Yes, I don't think there's a substitute for that. No, no, no. Just before we go on, can I just comment on this dangers thing, right, which is fun to think about. Uh, yeah. You know, there's a wonderful author, uh, was a wonderful author, Michael Crichton, Jurassic Park, all that sort of stuff. And one of his early books, uh, anyone here might have read Terminal Man, and some of his earliest work is just fantastic. And so many of these things we're discussing have been written out in the 50s and 40s by wonderful authors. John Wyndham wrote about some of this stuff as well. But he wrote this book called Terminal Man about a man who gets an implant to control his seizures. And um, he adapts, his brain adapts. As we're learning now with neural interfaces, people adapt quite quickly and start to consider prosthetic limbs that they're controlling with their brain to be really part of them. They start to really feel like it's part of who they are, and they start to control them in different ways and so forth. But the terminal man um, finds a way of using these, the, 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 the implants to give himself pleasure and to turn on his pleasure circuits. And he adapts and you know, gets to... And, of course, it becomes totally addictive as a behaviour. He just That's all he's living for now, and he's got total control of it, and he turns into a monster um, and, indeed, will murder to retain access to what he now has, you know, and his ability to control it. And it's a great, you know, if you want to explore something, it's a great little story to explore. 
some of those issues because we, we do adapt and we probably don't know exactly how we're going to adapt to some of these things. So was that perhaps a, a semi-religious experience for, for him, do you think? <laughs> that, that, that's an attempt at a segue. It was much more basic. It was much more primal uh, than religious <laughs> in his case. Uh, uh, that, that was an attempt at a segue, by the way. Well, <laughs> well, uh, I wanted to ask you a question that my brother put to me and, and he said that if... You have a strong religious conviction and you believe that we, humans, are made in the image of God. What does it mean to start changing our bodies with this technology? Are we still in the image of God or are we now something different? Uh, whoever, Bruce? Well, I'd like to answer that in a slightly different way because I think we personify God. We tend to think of God in our own image, if you like, or you know, there are different ways of conceptualising God in our society. But if someone was asked to draw a picture, it would probably look something like one of us, often. Um, I'm an atheist, so I'll preface that, but that's, that's okay. I absolutely respect all the ways of thinking about it. But one of the things I've been thinking about with this idea of augmenting ourselves, you know, for this conversation here, is how far would we go? And to my mind, where we stop is where we lose our identity. And it comes down to identity. And God, identity, they're related. As, uh, um, you know, if I did a quick show of hands here, just as a little thought experiment, uh, who here, if you were told by your GP, you'd be dead in 24 hours unless you get a mechanical heart replacement, who would say yes? I'll have it. right? But if I ask you a totally extreme version of the same question, but, you know, you've got brain cancer, it's inoperable, as brain cancer is, generally, um, and, you know, we're going to give you a, a, a mechanical brain in 24 hours, and then you'll still be alive, would you take it? Right? Show of hands. Right? Well, a couple. Um, most people would say no because it's not them, right? Um, and somewhere in the middle, another, a middle ground, because a more interesting one, that's obviously extreme, is if your words die, but maybe it's some sort of cancer of the face, but we can do a face transplant, maybe a steel face, maybe it's a blank plate of steel, just to sort of, or maybe it's someone else's face. Would you do that? And I think most people initially will say yes, but some people will think about it. All the people who been around for might actually say no, but people that have had that done have enormous trouble coping and they become suicide risks and other things because they have lost their identity. So to me, the boundaries of that conversation about how far we can go very much relate to when do we lose our identity because we can make technology like cochlear implant part of our identity quite readily. You know, Pistorius can make his legs part of his identity over in, you know, when he's running, not doing other nasty things. And all that sort of thing. But, you know, what about a face? Uh, you know, they're, they're, that's where the limitations come, I think. Did, did you want to add to that, Bob or Joe? Um, I'm happy to chip in. Uh, I think one thing to keep in mind is back to the, the co-evolution of people with technology is that things that... Technologies that have been around for a long time, you take for granted. So some of the examples that Bruce is uh, saying is you're comfortable with the, the artificial heart, you know, pacemakers, artificial heart, it doesn't sound too way out. An artificial brain, no one's done that, right? You, you, you don't have any concept about it. So we're comfortable wearing spectacles. I counted about 15 people wearing spectacles here and there's probably some wearing contact lenses. And you don't think that makes you less human. It just makes you be able to see better, um, right? It doesn't change your, your identity at all. So there is a continuum. Um, and it becomes very difficult when you start thinking about technologies that do not yet exist, 
you tend to think about them in a quite a different way. Um, Yes, and now I'd like to read out a, a little bit of dialogue that I had with a regular correspondent, Evelyn Bean, and I asked her that question that I just put to the panel now about uh, humans in God's image, and she gave me a really beautifully worded reply, which I'd like to read to you, and she said, in God's image, a likeness to him, and by the way, she has strong religious convictions, a likeness to him would be more to do with mental capacity and characteristics our ability to choose to make decisions and be creative, our ability to love. That's who I am on the inside, nothing to do with the optional or necessary extras. And I thought that was such a beautifully worded uh, statement. That uh, Now, if anybody in the audience would like to pose a question to the panel, uh, would you please show your hand? We have one at the back. Uh, and uh, Jared is our helpful microphone jockey today. I'm just interested in, in, in the issue of, of memory. I mean, if, if memory can be enhanced. enhanced. Well, can I start on that one? Because, again, that's a, a favourite one. If I, was, you know, I think we were talking last night about things that we get excited about, augmentation. And um, some years ago, I met a guy from Microsoft Research Labs. Gordon Bell was his name. He lived lives probably still, he's still around, um, part of his time here in Sydney and part in America. He had a project called My Life Bits, which was a memory augmentation experiment, where, which he was living. He'd carry a camera all day and microphones and quarters, and every time he met someone, take the photograph, store it away, instant retrieval, you know, so none of this, and when we've gotten further, you think about Google Glass and where we're going, but this was back a few years. But this idea that you remember everything, because the technology can record everything, there's no reason why you couldn't be running recording technology for all of these sessions or anything like it that you attend each day and it becomes navigable and searchable and retrievable just like a Google function. So this idea that we can have an augmented memory is, is evolving quite rapidly. It's becoming real quite rapidly uh, because we've got storage. The retrieval mechanisms are getting better. And of course, it's a collective journey now. We're actually remembering what other people remember for us because, hey, Wikipedia's there. And now that's a collective stored form of knowledge which is accessible like that, by voice, by... So what science fiction writers were dreaming about in, in the 50s, this idea of a super being who could just... who never forgot things. And they made a good movie about it recently. Was it called Impossible or something? It's a good movie about someone who just suddenly unlocked all his memories and he never forgot anything. Um, we're getting there. We're getting there. But there's a downside to that too, in my view, uh, because psychologists that I talk to talk about our need to forget to be healthy. And so you can't go to the full extreme, I think, of having something wired in there, that hard drive or that solid state storage device wired in there and having it all there for yourself. There has to be a barrier, there has to be distance because we cease to be healthy people when we can't put aside some of the memories that need to be put aside. I've said two comments. It's actually an old question. So um, Plato reported Socrates being very worried about this memory enhancement technology called writing. And he said that, no, and he said, look, this is terrible. No one will actually have a proper memory anymore because um, they'll, they'll, they'll rely on this uh, writing business. So, you know, it's, it's not a new thing. With regard to the forgetting, quite apart from your psychological health, just at the cognitive level, science cannot function without forgetting. The essence of science is abstraction the absolute essence of it, right? You have to be able to abstract away that, you know, the exact surface, you know, 
uh, material that this table is made of and just recognise that it's flat and we know that things don't roll off flat tables. Yes, and now we're talking about the, the quantified self. And if you're not familiar with that term, it's the idea is that you can bolt measuring devices onto yourself and then you can just keep this constant data feed for your entire lifespan or be recorded in some computer somewhere. So I've now got some computer, I've got some newspaper headlines that I picked up here, which may or may not be true, but I want to get the audience's and uh, the panel's reaction to this. Edward Menning reveals government program to monitor data feeds. Social media offers bionic discounts in exchange for advertising. And the quantified self-data intercepted by police to solve a Melbourne bombing. And can you imagine uh, these, these other ones such as, um, would you like your pacemaker connected to the internet? Would you like your shorts connected to social media, tweeting about your current physical state? Now, what strikes me about all of these things is uh, I'm being a little bit flippant with some of those columns there, but who's in control? And, and that's, that's like a theme I'd like to explore a little bit more. Who, who's in control? Is it me? Is it the government? Is it the police forces? Is it a church or is it an organisation? Or is it the technology? I'm sorry, I can't do that, Dave. <laughs> now... Um... That's, that's actually some, something I was thinking about the other day because I read about um, insulin pumps that can be remotely hacked. And the same goes, I think, for pacemaker, that they can be remotely hacked and people can interfere with it. And I was thinking about my cochlear implant. What happens if someone is able to hack into it and send subliminal messages? Like I go to the supermarket and it says, go to aisle five and pick up, pick me up, pick me up. So there, there, there need to be some safety mechanism. And of course, every safety mechanism can be broken eventually. But that, that especially for and medical... Wasn't people, that science fiction movie? Was it one of the Back to the Future series where he walked... Or maybe it was a Tom Cruise one, a Minority Report? And this thing suddenly says, oh, that's you, Tom Cruise. Like, you totally got to buy this product. And so it's beaming. So the thought of having advertising beam directly into your implant, Yova, I think that's, that, that sounds quite challenging. Someone uh, put up a cartoon. Uh, the day Google Glass was put out, practically. Um, they put out the little video, the little teaser saying, oh, there's things coming out. You had to head up the display on your glasses with everything you ever wanted. And, and it was so beautiful and elegant, the video, of course. And the same day, I think, practically, someone put up a cartoon saying, here's what it's really going to look like. And there was advertisements all the way down, Google ads on both sides. And, and, and you know, that's, that's what they're really going for. And it was like, oh, God, uh, that would be a nightmare. But, you know, this idea of technology controlling us at a very simple level, really basic level, it doesn't have any sophisticated security breaches. Who feels relieved, sometimes at least, when they switch off their phone completely? Right? And you get that sense of relief, emotional. So already, you're definitely having something happen to you do with that. It's kind of a little bit unpleasant, which is being driven by the technology you carry. And I found that I find that so interesting. You know that that's changed us. It's we're living with this thing, and or you know you can go into any example you like. But the people that feel compelled to check their email, like they hear the ping of the email, and like Pavlov's dogs, they salivate and come running to who emailed me or or Facebook. You know. The, 
that control is actually starting to be exercised in quite powerful ways, which stress people. Um, I actually did a study um, a couple of years ago of about 700 Australian workers to understand how these things are stressing them out. And it was a work fragmentation study because their work's been more fragmented and piecemeal and minute by minute there are interruptions and all that sort of stuff. And it's hurting people. And we actually could track their wellness and happiness based on how well they compartmentalise their day. Uh -huh. And people have been taken over the curve. They thought it was convenient. They thought it was good to have access to email. Thought it was good to have a smartphone. And it was to a point, and then after a, a point where the fragmentation got too much, it started to, this, their life started to deteriorate. And it's happening to so many Australians now. But is that a matter of technology controlling us, or us not being able to control the technology? It's a lack of self-control on our part. Yes, us letting, the, it's semantic, isn't it? But us letting the technology uh, take over. It is, I mean, we all have choices. Uh, yes, and I, I'd like to ask you whether, do you have a little pang, a little twinge of annoyance when, when your seatbelt detector on the car says, uh, I'm sorry, you must be having, you must, you, know, you can't unplug yourself to open the garage door. You've got to be practical on these things. Sometimes you go with the technology and sometimes you just ignore it. Yeah. It comes down to the individual. So this, well, almost, except that in a lot of workplaces, the expectations and norms have moved so far. But if you do switch off your phone, your colleagues are starting to put an enormous social pressure on you and your boss and so forth. So, unfortunately, because the entire system has kind of changed its norms, some of us have lost the ability to take total control of it. So, um, Bob, do you see this fundamentally changing the, you know, we talk about the work-life balance, you know, that we can be productive at work and then we can be fulfilled and happy social human beings outside of work. But does technology liberate us from work, or does it chain us to work? Well, it, it, it changes you, but the idea of this autonomous technology, so this is a phrase that Langdon Winner, who's a political scientist in the US, he wrote a book on autonomous technology, out-of-control technology. Um, this was written in the 1970s, and it was about exactly this idea. So it's not a new idea that people have, that technology is this external thing, and it will go on its own way, and it's going to go and control us. We always have a choice. And yes, the issues at the moment that are in front of people's minds are the fact that yes, you can be emailed wherever you are. And initially, that feels liberating because you're in control. I can work wherever I am. Then the expectation builds and then you feel, um, then, then you feel trapped. But these sorts of things have occurred for a long time. Any, any technology, um, you know, uh, automatic looms, um, to, to, to do weaving, right? The fact that uh, you're in a factory system where the pace of work is not governed entirely by you, but by some other organised system. So, you know, people, people often have this tension with technology, and it's not really a technological question, it's a political question, right? About, you know, how, how you organise yourselves. Collectively, society has to figure out what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And you start to see that, for example, with you know, cyberbullying laws, um, the fact that there are restrictions on what advertisers can do to people of less than a certain age and so on. 
So is, is it the case that all this change is so fast that we can't keep up with it, that the regulation and our social norms, like how, how many of us have been in the situation where you're in a, a dinner party or something like that and someone's mobile phone goes off and are you having a conversation with them or, you, or are they ha having a conversation with somebody who's out there? Is it, is it it's all too much for us as a society to adjust to this and we feel naturally uncertain about it? I think, I think there is a reaction time but um it used to be considered perfectly fine to go out at night and drink a couple of bottles of wine and then drive home. Now, if you did that now, you'd be, uh, you'd be ostracised right, by, by most parts of society. Society has learned that alcohol and driving together are not a good idea. It took several decades to figure that out. Ditto seatbelts. Right? There's lots of things like that with, that we now take for granted. And it's actually a good thing that it's a reaction because think of what the... Um, the alternative is that is someone sitting down beforehand and regulating before. So you know, open societies tend to only regulate and legislate when there are a problem. You're allowed to do anything that you want except these things which are considered harmful. So I think it's a natural um, yeah. evolution in the political system. I, th I think it's generational as well because people my age or even younger than me will not accept, for instance, someone answering the phone at a mealtime. But amongst young people, it's just quite acceptable. And, I mean, walking across the street, you know, pedestrian crossing, people will SMS. <laughs> so, so technology, they're so sucked in into it, they can't get out of it. The, you know, the norms that we had about what's acceptable, what's y not. Yes, I, I had an interesting question put to me by a prominent scientist a couple of weeks ago when I was describing this panel. And he, he wanted to know that, you know, in the movie Avatar, that the main character goes and inhabits some other body, and he thought that it was actually possible, I, I think maybe it's a little fanciful, but that we could now transplant our consciousness into some remote body walking around, and we could act out our lives out in that sort of scenario. And maybe the consequences aren't quite the same because if you kill a robot avatar and or your avatar does X to Y, is that actually okay? Is this actually a possibility? Can you see this happening? Well, I would argue that that's... Uh, I want to take some more questions from the audience before we run out of time because there was heaps of hands before, so we've got to get back. So just quickly, though, I would argue that's exactly um, what happens and, and what I've, um, where, I've, where I've tried to take this dialogue here in sexuality was that I mean, it's a very serious topic, but if we look at what's going on with pornography and the virtualization of sex there and the changing of norms there and behaviours, you know, it's changing us. That's a virtual world that we're participating in that is reshaping what's acceptable in the physical world. And I, personally, I think it's dangerous. A lot of people are studying it and the nexus between that and potentially violence against women. Some of those studies are inconclusive, but where are we headed and where is that world taking us? I believe sexual norms have changed for centuries. They do change. They go through the interesting cycle, Victorian era, this sort of era. I think we're changing now and, um, and that's the virtual world. Well, and, and, and if the drone kills the bad guy, the drone yeah, autonomously makes so the decision, is it you or is it I? Is it it, the person who made the machine, the person who, uh, who was driving the uh, computer back at the office? Now, we've got we're some questions from the audience. Uh, and while you're in, maybe you make a quick comment, Bruce, while we... No, no, I, was, I want to hear some more questions from you. Um, I just, it was exactly what I was thinking five minutes ago, and talking about 
the intelligence of the, the um, technological components that we're dealing with, um, there's obviously a certain amount of intelligence in the cochlear implant to take the signals and interpret them into nerve signals in the brain that um, interpret speech. Um, and one of the uh, frustrations that I've seen people have, like I've had it when uh, you're driving and you've got your, my phone is giving me in, um, navigation directions and it says, says to go somewhere that I don't want to go. And I say, no, shut up. Uh, and of course, it's not intelligent. It's, the illusion, it's giving the illusion of intelligence because it's speaking in a human voice and it's reacting to its circumstances. Yeah. So I guess what I'm interested here is um, we're obviously introducing more and more intelligence in these things and building machine intelligence to really understand the questions that people ask and you know, of your prosthetic limb the signals that you're giving it in the context that it is, you know, that, that it's in trying to intelligently make up its mind about what it needs to do next. Um, but then we have to ask, is that, how much is that a separate intelligence that we need to have respect for in its own right and say, well, the automatic gun killed you, it wasn't the fault of the people, you know, back at the base. So, so which one of you would like to pick that up? I, I, I can deal with that. So, um, so for, for people that don't understand how this artificial intelligence technology works, it's often grossly overestimated how intelligent it is. There are an enormous number of extraordinarily simple things that all of you can do that no one can make a computer that can do. Right? It's, it's remarkably difficult. So you correctly said it's the semblance, right? The fact that you can synthesize a voice and you think that there's a, there's a person there. So that's, that's the first point. The second point, the issue of who's responsible, this is a legal and political question, right? It is not a technical question, and society will figure out ways of dealing with that. So you see that, for example, with product liability. So, you know, it is a part of the social compact that if someone says, here is a car, it is fit for purpose, it can go and it can stop, but if the brakes don't work, they're going to be held liable, right? So the company that manufactured the car, because what have you done? You've taken it back to the individual people. Laws are made for people. So I don't see a lot of value in trying to imagine how you would make laws for a machine, because laws are a function of society, and society is a bunch of, is a bunch of people. So it's hard to, I think it's hard to come up with examples along the lines that you described where you wouldn't be able to go and say, well, okay, if there's blame to be placed, it will be placed on this person or that person, and here is the legal reason for, for doing so. Mm. It would, yeah, there's always that way of going back on it. But there are real examples of uh, autonomous technologies that have gone off the rails, and an automatic, uh, one of these roboticized vehicles, I think in South Africa, actually, with a cannon sort of malfunctioned them started firing in all directions and there were injuries and so forth. I mean, it actually has happened and is happening. Um, but of course, culpability can be traced back to well, indeed, it would whoever be. didn't check the software or whoever misused the thing, you know, there'd be some uh, exactly, exactly. Who, who, who didn't have the kill switch to turn the machine off. Yeah. All right, now, I've, I've just got the release notes for uh, I 1.2. 
And in the I1.2 installation note, it says, warning, I1.2 doesn't work with pacemaker 2.3, doesn't work with uh, ear 4.9, and please do not use in conjunction with bionic leg. <laughs> Are we, uh, what sort of technological risks are we exposing to us? Like, our bodies are prone to fail, but the technology is also prone to fail. Does that bring in a, an, an element of, well, I guess it goes back to the control to some extent, but are we exposing ourselves to, the, to those sort of risks again? Do you want to um, so stop? Yeah, I mean, when people talk about risk, you tend to think of the risk of something happening because you did something. <laughs> and uh, you, you might want to drive that down to zero. But there's always also a risk that you need to take account of, which is the risk of a bad thing happening because you didn't intervene. So you're going to go and build this machine or this factory that will do a certain thing. You're going to go and think of the risks to that. Well, let's go back to energy, right? There's the risk of nuclear power, um, and you can imagine all sorts of bad things happening there, um, and they're kind of scary. There's equally the risk of all of the things that you take for granted, right? Which is uh, coal-fired energy, which kills you know, hundreds of thousands of people per year, right? Nuclear power doesn't kill anywhere near as many as that. So my point is that it's really just where you're drawing the boundary of these things. So if you say the risk of um, uh, take the heart implant, yes, there is a risk that a heart pacemaker could fail. That is absolutely true. But there's also a risk that without that implant, you will die. And in the end, you will have to weigh those risks up, and the net risk will not be zero. Uh, yes, and as you said earlier, our perception of risk is very poor, and the, the don't immunise camp of people are, are certainly culpable in that. Now, I think there's more questions from the audience, and so uh, we've got a gentleman with a black T-shirt there. Howdy. Um, I was just wondering... Obviously, the, most of the products that have been developed so far have been to address medical needs. Do you see a point in the future and how far into the future where the more cosmetic or, I guess, narcissistic things we've mentioned, like bionic eyes or even magnetism or something like that that you can tr control yourself, will be the norm, I guess, or take over it, medically required ones? It's happening now in the sense that one of the things that I, I find fascinating is, for example... American baseballers all getting shoulder surgery to augment their ability to pitch more efficiently because they all going to have you know the shoulder tear out of the socket at some point and that all the tissue would I don't have the, the, the language to describe what goes on but they all have the operation without a problem. You obviously have breast augmentation and all this sort of stuff and we're changing our identities and what what we think is beautiful and trying to follow that and going down weird and wonderful paths there. So I think it's inevitable and it's already happening in those those sorts of ways. Um, it's, it's probably a slowly evolving thing, though. You know, not a radical step change. But, but you know, what we consider uh, uh, highly desirable and what we chase after on the sporting field, on the field of attractiveness in the mating game, um, we, you know, as competition hots up, we go with it and, you know, we tend to... So a question for you, for you, Joe, is... Has the cochlear implant changed your perception of yourself and do you think it's changed the perception of other people to you? Well, as far as me, myself, it gave me a lot more confidence. I mean, I became much more confident because before I had the implant, when I, as I said, gradually lost my hearing, I, I became 
virtually a recluse because I find it so difficult to communicate with people. So I, um, I just lack confidence. And now, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm okay. Did, did you predict how you would react when you got it? No, you can't do that. <clears throat> I've I, I got to tell you that I, my own experience with this was, it's not all that long ago that I got these hearing aids, it's about uh, coming up to two years or so, and I thought, well, these now label me as a disabled person, which is actually, in a sense, where I am, really. And I thought I would hide these, you know, and I wouldn't want to go out and... But the, when I got into my office place, and I, there's some friends from my work here too, by the way, and I, and I whipped these things off and I said, hey, check these things out. This got fuzzy logic in them, 32-bit digital signal processing. I didn't predict how that would, how that would go. And was there an element of that for you too, Joe? Did you go, oh, wow, you know, this is amazing. Look, I can now hear you. Sure. Um, <coughs> sorry, can you repeat? Yes, yeah, sorry. I, I, no, when, when you speak to someone with a hearing disability, that you have to face them. Uh, did, did you get excited and, and, and about the implant and, and want to describe it to people and say, look what I've got, this is amazing? Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, I've got no problem telling people that I'm deaf, and I'm actually, by definition, deaf. I'm profoundly deaf. Because if I take these two off, by the way, this as I said before, just amplifies sound. But I've only got about 5% in this year. <coughs> Excuse me. And this one, of course, creates sound. So, um, I'm lost here again. <laughs> so, when I take both out, when I go to sleep, for instance, I take them out, when I shower, I take them, take them out, uh, I'm profoundly deaf. I can't hear a thing. And I don't, I'm not embarrassed telling people that I'm profoundly deaf. But I'm very proud of it. I talk to people about it. One of my functions at the Bionic Ear Institute is of an ambassador. I go and talk to organizations and tell people about it. So I think it's fantastic. I mean, I'm really happy with it. Could All right, now, I, we'll go to another question in a moment. Uh, oh, actually, Mark. Uh, can we have a microphone to, uh, to Mark here? Um, I was interested in the discussion earlier about law and order. Um, can we imagine a society in the future in which uh, technology is used to augment behaviour, not actually capabilities. And we take the, the simple example at the moment of a cuff that can detect that a person has left an area, and so therefore a parolee can be determined where they are. But we actually now have technology which allows us to give someone a little shock when they do something bad, like hit my wife, <laughs> not say nice things to my child. And do we take the nanny state, which is certainly you know, a common expression at the moment, but it's really an abstraction of uh, risk away from the individual. Can that be so extreme then that we, we now have a society in which behaviour is simply changed because we can detect what people have just done or just about to do? I'd love to answer that. You know, it's, um, I mean, the minority report story is the extreme, right? the pre-crime unit. Right? But it's something that people have written about and fantasised about for a long time in different ways and one of the most wonderful forms of literature around it is the Clockwork Orange or Clockwork Orange Anthony Burgess's book which is about changing behaviour through shock therapies and so forth for this individual, this horrible monster but we're already starting down that road too in small way we put electronic bracelets on people to keep them within boundaries 
when they're on parole. We have tracking devices and ask people to keep them with them at all times when they're being convicted of pedophile offences and so forth. We have to know where they are and, and they, that relates as well. So it's curbing, let's say, movement, if you like. I mean, this electroshock thing we're doing with animals, interestingly, there's electronic adjustment of cows in Australia with collars that give them mild shocks and audio responses and things when they... So you don't need fences anymore, you know, they'll actually stop. Um, so we're already doing it in that form. Uh, you've got to wear this bracelet uh, and you will be in breach of your parole conditions if you don't. Um, now, that's not the brain implant. It's not rewiring you as a human being and taking away your identity, but it's kind of a slight, it's a slight bite of that, isn't it? We're, t we're taking small steps towards doing some of that. And there's a huge pressure as well in the punitive uh, responses to crime don't work. They're not working very well. I mean, particularly in some countries, you take the United States, the jails are awful, overflowing. And if we're not re-educating in some way, if we're not actually using everything at our disposal to help people try and change themselves, um, the system breaks. So, can I just... Could a Catalogian sort of response, though? I, 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 I know, it's, it's very well in and very awful, but they're actually doing that with child um, sex offenders in the United States in certain prisons right now. They're actually doing that. It's showing it's, it's exactly like Pocket Orange. I don't agree with it. I, don't, I think it's immoral, and I also think that it doesn't work that well because they pretend that they have the right response. So it's a dreadfully fraught area, but we are... Parts of our society are doing that now. But can, can I just repeat something I said before? This is a political choice. It is absolutely nothing to do with the technology. The technology's been around for a long time, and there is absolutely nothing that compels a society to do this. You could go and do this now. You could go and wire up your children with an electric shock collar and remote control them if they didn't bring you a beer when you wanted it, right? You wouldn't do that, right? So we, we have a choice. But where I violently disagree with that is that we as individuals have a choice, but I would say, based on what I know and 20 years of studying the co-evolution of technology and people, is that there is an inevitability about it. In other words, we can make individual choices, but somebody somewhere will make a different choice. So there is an inevitability about it creeping into some aspects of society. Um, and we, uh, we can't stop it. Yes, yeah, so we can, we can just let it happen to us, or we can make it happen... Now, we, we need to find it, but, but the idea that we can cognitively sit here and know what's best and therefore we're all right is to me insanity. Yes. Um, other people with far, more, far darker minds than ours or just far more um, pragmatic approaches to the world. You know, take a Julian Assange, he's got a very binary view of the world. Truth should be free. He doesn't see the shades of grey. There's a lot of people like that out there. And so these things creep in. Yes, and, and people who make predictions are generally wrong. So speaking of predictions, and uh, we, we're going to wind up in a moment, but uh, one final thought is, now you notice the title of this panel discussion has been The Rise of Cyborgs and Post-Human Beings. We haven't talked about post-human beings really very much, but the term really refers to how we evolve in, as humans, as a species, as, a, uh, as an organism, and, and where might that take us? Now there's a thing called the singularity. Have you, who's heard of the singularity? It's a pretty out there kind of concept, 
But uh, rather than me explaining it, maybe I'll get uh, one of our panellists. You guys want to pick up the singularity? Sure. Um, Bob. Um, I can explain it. I don't believe in it. Um, so the, 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 the idea is um, the observation that some technologies, particularly microelectronics, have advanced rapidly in the past few decades. So a computer now uh, that you carry in your pocket is more powerful than a supercomputer 20 years ago. And if you um, ignore what we know about physics and imagine that extrapolation continuing, if you also ignore the difficulty of actually making intelligent software, then you can get to a starting point where you hypothesize that eventually you will be able to get a computer that's so powerful and so smart that it can go and design another computer which is even more smart and more powerful than itself. Now, if you believe that false supposition, then you can go and derive all sorts of things, right? And, you know, if you believe 1 plus 1 equals 3, I can convince you of anything. But that is the essence of the singularity. Believe one single falsehood, and then from that, you can imagine all sorts of wonderful things happening. That's Bob's version. I'm with you, Bob, because, I mean, I see it, I always understood it as the point at which computers surpass the human brain. You know, the supposition that there would be a point. And there's a Ray Kurzweil was this proponent of this wonderful term, it's just a wonderful term, it's remarkable. However, to create hardware that's smarter than what goes on here in this brain means, first, I believe, we have to understand this, and we don't. Uh, and so there's a, the, my, my version of it is there's a mistake there, my, my, the reason I think it's flawed, in that people believe processing power is, is what equates to intelligence, and they have a completely different thing. Um, this isn't just about horsepower, what goes on between our ears. It's about um, a quite amazing thing we don't yet understand, which, which actually collects sensory inputs from all sorts of sources, physical sources from, our, um, uh, from emotions and all that sort of stuff. And, and um, we just don't have the first idea of how to replicate that. If we ever do replicate, if we ever reach the singularity, I think it'll be in biological computing, because I, I can't see a way of simulating this if we don't understand it without recreating it. I'd like to announce at this point that the real Rod is lying in bed reading the newspaper and what you see before you is a facsimile uh, made of silicone and chips and carbon fibre and other funky stuff. Now, are there any quick questions before we wrap up, before we uh, did us? Yes, we have one up here. Can we do that? You guys see a limit to Moore's Law Um, Can you repeat the question, please? Yeah, the, the, the question is, is there a limit to Moore's law? Moore's law says that the number of transistors that you can fit on a single chip doubles every 18 months. And this has held true for several decades, and it is quite remarkable. Um, there's a couple of answers to this. One is that if you need at least one atom per transistor, then absolutely there is a limit. Um, whether you could store more than a single bit in a single atom... Mm. Um, is still not entirely clear. Um, and at one level, it's one of these questions where you say, well, we really don't know. Um, and it, 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 it's kind of hardly even worth trying to imagine. I mean, it's hard enough to try and think what you might be able to do in 20 years' time, let alone you know, in the infinite future. I think in the shorter term, yes, you will continue to be able to pack more and more transistors into a single device. Um, yeah. Is there a limit? I, I, I suspect there is, but it would be very difficult to say that it's impossible. There's a lovely saying by Arthur Clarke, the science fiction writer, if you ask an eminent scientist whether something's possible and he says yes, you should believe them, believe him or her, 
If you ask the scientist if something is impossible, then take the answer with a great grain of salt. Mm. So I'm being cautious. The, the, there's this beautiful work going on, ANU's doing some stuff, UNSW doing some stuff, where they're storing bits on the spin of an individual electron, you know, circling uh, an atom. You know, and that's just mind-blowing. And I think there's two things out of that. One is there's still plenty of room at the bottom. There's still plenty of miniaturisation yet to be done. But then there's this whole equation of what compute power do we get when we start to understand how to do quantum computing? Because we're not talking about bits anymore, we're talking about qubits. And, and so we might get a multiplier effect on how much processing can be accomplished for the transistors we have. They may be far more powerful than what we do now. And we just don't know, do we? We just no. don't know what's, what, what that might look like. So there might be quite a few jumps yet. Uh, maybe one last and then that will dilute. Yes, can we have one? I was wondering if you could comment. Do you think ultimately our ability to generate power will be what limits our capacity to develop technology? I'm talking about energy. Yeah. Energy. yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's a factor that slows the growth of everything. Um, whether there will be a limit to it or not is completely unclear. So there are plenty of technologies under development and being prototyped that could... Um, so there's one in particular. It's a particular... It's called a, the Travelling Wave Reactor. It's a nuclear reactor design. Um, it will be uh, prototype tested by about 2030, which, if uh, were possible, you could use just all of the depleted uranium in the world and you could provide enough electricity per person, the same amount of electricity per person as the average American uses, for 10 billion people on the planet for 10,000 years. Right? So that's kind of conceivable, but I'm talking a long way out. Um, and then if someone ever cracks credible fusion energy, then there would be even more. But practically, right now, it is a huge um, problem with carbon pollution. But in 2009, I, I was so lucky. I got to visit some people at IBM Labs. These guys, that, they, were, they did a video not so long ago where they did an animation with atoms. Like they're able to manipulate individual atoms. And we had a discussion about where um, photolithography was going, how, how much smaller things could go. And I'm sitting there taking notes and I'm with my heroes listening to these, these guys. Um, and, and, and they were sort of... Um, telling me, you know, after this amazing display of miniaturisation and where it was going, they said, uh, but that's not actually what we care about most here. And I said, well, what, what do you care about most? And they said, electricity, that's what we talk about all day. It's all about power consumption, because from a commercial point of view, it's already this huge limitation. And it's a huge limitation because, for example, Google's data centres, even back then, were hitting limits of what, how much power they could take off the grid, because they're so big and they're taking so much juice out of it. And of course we're hitting them daily because these, these things we carry, these phones, run out of battery really fast and we want to do more with them and, and so we kind of see it. So electricity is, from a commercial perspective, it's actually quite a dominant force in all these guys that are developing our gadgets, actually pro probably the most dominant thing they're thinking about. How do we squeeze more power out per watt, <laughs> more compute power out per watt? I'm, I'm just wondering from people out in the audience, um, I don't have to look at this picture rule for the last hour or so. Do you find that a little bit creepy? <laughs> yeah, maybe I should take it down. I think we might wind to a, a close now, and uh, with that I'd like to thank our panel members. It's been fantastic to have here today. I cannot think of a better group of people to discuss this topic. So Jove, or Jove, Noran, thank you very much.
keep an eye out for the book. It's going to Thanks. be a hot one. Thanks, Pat. Thank you. And also keep an eye out on the science show because uh, Bruce recorded a science show segment recently that will be coming up on the ABC. And I think he might have beat me because I also have an Occam's razor, which is coming out soon. And... Uh, Professor Bob Williamson, great privilege to have you on our panel today. Thank you very much for your insights. Thank you. And also thank you very much to you who've come on today, and I hope you enjoyed yourself. Thank you to Madeline. Thank you to Dorothy. And various other people have helped, Broderick and so on. And enjoy the rest of your day. Catch you later.